Welcome to the Command Line Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Command Line Gideon, a self-proclaimed hacker, eccentric, and hacktivist. This is my show about the practice and profession of programming, drawing on well over a decade of professional experience and a lifetime spent hacking, the intersection of technology with society and public policy, and anything else clever, elegant, or funny that catches my mind as a diehard technology geek. I enjoy learning a great deal, unsurprisingly, if you've been listening for any length of time. My hobbies tend to focus in on more technical pursuits that admit a lot of reading, study, and learning, from brewing to software to guitar, podcasting, of course, um, all sorts of things that have that similar sort of opportunity to really dig in year after year and unpack what it means to develop some sort of skill to produce something that I find rewarding, satisfying, or enjoyable. That has been very much top of mind lately, especially as we've been tackling new learning curves I've talked about over the last couple episodes as work as I've been transitioning into this DevOps role. The sort of arc organizations go through in embracing continuous delivery and developer operations is interesting to me, especially how so much of that learning and growth is informed by the experiences that almost seem necessary to have to go through to appreciate each successive stage to build up to that. There's certainly parallels in the other pursuits that I have, so I thought I would spend some time this time around, despite the fact that I have talked about learning on and off quite a bit over the past uh, handful of years, uh, more than a decade that I've been doing this podcast, focusing in in particular on that sort of punctuated uh, growth model or that complex curve involved, I think, in approaching some of the most interesting topics. So hopefully you find that enjoyable as always. Um, If you do, you have some questions or thoughts that you want to offer. Uh, Listen to the outro tag. In addition, still having some pretty good discussions on IRC. Go to freedone.net, search for the command line podcast, or go directly to the channel CMDLN. Find us there and join the conversation. Recently in my home brewing, I've been getting more and more into advanced topics. These are things that I've heard about over the years, certainly. Read about in books and articles. Listened to podcasts that delved into them. At those earlier points in my study as a home brewer, I discarded those topics. I didn't feel like they impacted my process as much, were approachable, or I just didn't have the understanding to kind of delve into them. This has me thinking a lot about how learning curves aren't a, a simple shape, if you will, that there are inflections, plateaus, Uh, asymptotes, really kind of a little bit of gnarl in how you get into some of the best sort of technically weighty topics. For brewing, something I've been doing for, well, on and off actually for about half my life, but in earnest for about the last uh, seven or eight years, right now I'm thinking a lot about pH. It's a simple scientific topic if you're familiar with it. It's just a measure of Uh, hydrogen ions in solution. On one end of the scale you have acids, on the other end you have bases. This intersects with beer in a very non-obvious, complex way. 
At various points during the process, you actually have slightly different targets, and the impacts are a little bit different. In all grain brewing, which is what I do, understanding pH starts to unlock how that can affect your efficiency, that is, how much sugar you can actually extract from your ingredients. For the boil, it gets into protein coagulation, a topic that I don't think really makes sense until you start to think about uh, finishing your beer and getting into other advanced topics around clarity. You want a good hot break, which pulls a lot of the haze-forming proteins out of the beer during the boil. You want a good cold break as you're chilling going into your fermenter, also to pull different kinds of haze-forming proteins out of your beer. pH has an effect on that hot break, uh, one that not a lot of people cover very much. I've only found one article on it so far, but definitely in my practical experience have some greater appreciation for this topic now than I might have even a year ago. About a year ago, what I was thinking about more was water chemistry. It starts to get into pH a little bit, but it's also, I think, more focused on flavor impacts and yeast health. Certainly as I've gotten into that, it sets the stage for being able to understand how pH becomes a factor, not just in those other technical elements of the process up to that point, but also outside of sours, the, the obvious uh, acidic beers that you might be familiar with. For regular kinds of beers, also has uh, a subtle but noticeable effect on the flavors that you perceive. If I hadn't spent the time on these other topics, yeast health, beer clarity, uh, the adjustment of water and how that impacts different flavors for different styles, there, I don't think there would be any way for me to really directly appreciate how this single variable actually affects so much across the spectrum of the beer making process. Beer thankfully is quite forgiving. It's going to self-correct for a lot of mistakes. In particular, if you get to a healthy fermentation, uh, yeast is a, uh, is a natural buffer when it comes to pH. So if your pH is a little higher, than you'd like, a little lower than you'd like, and the finished product, the yeast is going to fix a lot of that on the way to producing your beer. In my last couple of brew days, I've even noticed earlier in the process that there seems to be some self-correction built in, that malted barley has a certain buffering capacity which can help compensate for inadequate modification of pH in the, the, the wort uh, during mash and during the boil, the actual act of boil alters the chemistry of the beer in, in a way that I think moderates uh, pH. So it's more sort of a, a curve where you have a couple of, of points of pressure that you can apply once you understand how to apply them. On the flip side, if you don't have that knowledge, it's not anything to worry about. It will generally follow the curves that you want, more or less. You just may not get quite as crisp or flavorful or clear a beer as you might otherwise without understanding. I guess my point is you can enjoy, I certainly have enjoyed, the beer making process without that advanced knowledge. However, I also am a very technically minded person as you might gather uh, after these many years of conversations. So having that depth to, to delve into is satisfying as well as having that approachability. I think technical systems, programming languages, tools, libraries, frameworks that have similar characteristics that are forgiving to the beginner, but have a sophistication and a depth. I think that's an earmark or hallmark of them being amongst the most thoughtful and best design 
of all the kinds of choices that we can make and the technologies that we work with. Some of that certainly for skilled designers can come through in the technology itself being reliable and self-correcting the face of naive use and hence mistakes that might arise from that. Some of that too I think comes up in documentation. I can certainly think of readme's books and tutorials that build progressively in the same kind of way uh, that my study of brewing has built on itself uh, topic after topic to unlock more advanced and uh, finely honed aspects of the, the, the technical approaches. In learning tools and programming languages that have this quality, it means you don't have to jump right into the deep end. You can exercise a certain self-forgiveness, starting naive and learning your way through, building stepwise towards the most sophisticated expressions that are possible with that technology. I certainly see this with my recent study of Rust. I have to hold up the Rust book, of course, as, and I think I have before. It's one of the better examples of very thoughtfully laying the material out in a way where it builds on itself. The error handling chapters in particular do a great job of showing where one could start naively to uh, just unwrap results and option types, these, these uh, uh, monadic types that have uh, certain characteristics in terms of um, giving the language safety beyond uh, null, languages that have null pointers or null references, forcing the programmer, the callee, to think about what a value actually represents. Is it some value that results from a function call? Is it the absence of value? Is it an error? There are naive ways of doing that that just essentially result in a panic in the program and the process ends. The material that covers this then builds up not just one level, but two or three and talking about different approaches. Approaches that differ in their ergonomics, that is uh, how expressive and easy to use they are, how idiomatic they are, i.e. how typical, how, how frequently are you going to find these approaches in actual live code using this language, uh, as well as, I think, different failure characteristics um, and different use cases. I really enjoyed that aspect, and I think that's a concentrated example of sort of working through some of the preliminaries to get to the full breadth of what's possible. A parallel technology that I talked about in the last episode, Docker, and increasingly ways of doing container orchestration. And I have to admit, Docker certainly isn't the only way to approach this. There are many similar tools out there, and I don't think I, I touched on those enough in the last episode in terms of uh, configuration tools like Puppet and Chef, other ways of standing up VMs of different natures like Vagrant and Ansible. Uh, there's a whole perfusion, a, a variety of different valid choices here. My point more is about approaching these naively again you may not immediately get the value of using them. Starting to use them uh, admits certain possibilities. Uh, also, certain challenges, obviously. They're fairly complex. There is a steepness in just getting over that initial hump. Once you get there, that starts to open up what's possible, but also starts to suggest certain patterns of usage to make that more manageable and to tackle uh, the next hill up on that uh, complicated learning curve. In the midst of our own adoption of Kubernetes to do container orchestration with Docker, I had a conversation with a, a coworker, someone who works much more on sort of the architecture and design side of things, and he expressed some 
skepticism around this adoption, uh, wondering if we really needed it, if the additional complexity was worthwhile. I had two answers for that. I, one was that um, certainly the nature of the problems that we started to get into just using containers in the way we had for packaging and deployment started to open up problems that we just hadn't seen with prior approaches, with doing things naively on um, more full weight VMs out on Amazon's compute platform. The other was that I had certainly seen in a few places similar sort of adoption curve, that others had gone through certain stages that we ourselves were going through in terms of utilizing these technologies or, or similar ones that, again, really points out that you can't kind of understand more advanced topics without doing a certain amount of practical work on the beginning and intermediate materials. I think that also in some ways lends some resilience to, to ta tackling these topics that if you have a good grasp of the fundamentals, as you get into the deep end, you then are well supported by your earlier understanding versus if you jump all the way to that end, you're not necessarily going to understand uh, what underpins some of the things that you're using. I think this goes back to some of the best writing around uh, abstraction and software. It's okay to utilize it. It can act as a force amplifier. It can make it easier at a higher level to reason about systems. If you don't have the understanding of what's being abstracted away, at least to a certain extent though, there's a risk in that. If those abstractions fail, and they do, you're not going to be in a good position in terms of uh, being able to cope with that failure, learn from it, and improve your systems. When I wrote Flashbake for Corey Doctorow a few years ago, this all started from a conversation. He had approached me wondering how he could best use and perhaps script to automate Git for managing his writings. The tool, if you're familiar with it, uh, does quite a bit more than that. It's actually a system more so for sort of gleaning and pulling together ambient information in the author's life and their a handful of authors who actually continue to use this tool and preparing that, formatting that in a way that it can be captured as sort of um, uh, the metadata, the writerly metadata that goes along with uh, the process of, of writing. We didn't get there initially. Uh, we had to have several back and forth discussions about what it was that he was trying to accomplish. I myself as a technologist came in with certain biases, assumed that this was more about using version control and that he had some interest or some experience in using it previously. It took a bit for me to understand that that really wasn't the case, that what he was thinking about was much more about a conversation he'd had with an archivist. There, that person lamented about with uh, authorship being so much more digital now, a lot of it being ephemeral, the kinds of things that traditionally archivists and librarians have been able to rely on in terms of margin notes and the like, or iterative drafts, are, are just not available. How do you then set about designing uh, a process or a tool to recapture some of that without giving up all of the affordances and benefits that you get with using digital tooling to approaching the writerly arts? I admit that as a technologist, I've recently considered rewriting Flashbake from the ground up based on everything that I personally learned and the fact that people are still using it. I'm torn though. People are still using it and I don't feel like I could rewrite it out from under them without starting to get into conversations about how they're using it, 
what that rewrite would serve if it would just be switching technology stacks or just improving some of the underlying tooling in a way that satisfies me but it's no benefit to them worse if i under if i undertake that naively without understanding how people are really utilizing it and the possible impacts of the decisions i make in a rewrite that could take capabilities away from them or negatively adversely impact the ways that they're using it i think that there's a co-learning experience here that follows a similar sort of tension a push me pull you when we look at not just our own uh, approach to topics but when we look at software itself the act of writing it as a form of discovery and learning the people that we're working with even in those early conversations that we're trying to build some value for in creating code may not have a particularly sophisticated grasp they may have a very vague high level understanding of some need that's going unfulfilled when they approach us or they approach a project that we're working on and are trying to utilize it to realize some benefit. We really can't write software in a vacuum. We're writing it for someone. The act of providing the value that software we write uh, provides ultimately changes how people understand the problems that they have, at least if we're doing it right. When I say conversation, I don't mean that it just is a simple back and forth. I mean that it's actually an understanding in many people's minds that evolves over time. It has to be revisited. Terms uh, have to be redefined. Vocabularies get expanded. You think about uh, how software provides someone, uh, in the best case, the ability to do something they could not do previously. That begs uh, new terms. It means that there's just going to be some new variables in those conversations. You can't talk in terms of uh, problem C if you need feature A and B even to get to C. You, once you deliver A and B, then you might even start to understand that eventual problem. The approach that's taken, though, in unlocking that problem, of course, is going to affect your understanding of it and the way you think about possible further solutions. Ideally, if we're successful, software is active and lively, and we have those conversations time and time again. It does require some patience. Again, it's that uh, permissiveness that we have towards ourselves in our own le learning that I think we have to turn outwards that can serve us well, to be patient with others, to understand that they're going to need to take time to grapple with features and the implications. And when I say time, I don't mean uh, a limited, immediate sort of time. It may actually take quite a bit of working with something for them to really come back and go, oh, hey, wow, like, I get it now. I get that that you're giving me something that profoundly changes the way that I approach the work that I'm doing, uh, the thing that I'm trying to accomplish with this software. That can be exciting, of course. It also can be terrifically frustrating when there are those inevitable disconnects and, and misunderstandings. I think it's worth pushing through, though. I think that bearing in mind that we learn as much from those conversations as the people that we're writing software for is uh, something that can armor us to really keep at it and to keep asking, even if it's just why, 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 to get at some of these roots, to, to see that change as it evolves in real time as we're working with the people that we're writing software for. Some of the best collaborations I've had like this with users over the years admit a high degree of excitement when they get it. 
when they come back with amazing ideas and start brainstorming with us directly, that's hugely energizing. And it takes really setting up the space well and approaching those conversations in the right frame of mind to get there and to derive that benefit. It's well worth any sort of uh, stumbles or missteps that we might have along the way if we keep those really strong good outcomes in mind of what we could really do when we're collaborating well in that co-learning environment as software authors with our software users. These are just a few of my thoughts recently on sort of how learning curves are more complicated, I think, than we often admit and discuss. As always, I'm curious to hear what your own experiences are, whether they parallel mine or they suggest something even uh, more wild and expansive in admitting that learning can be very complicated. As always, you can share your thoughts, your stories, your anecdotes with me, and I'm happy to share them with everybody else. That's going to do it for this episode. As always, I want to thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed the program, please do tell a friend. If you have a question, suggestion, or correction, you can send those to feedback at thecommandline.net, or you're welcome to record a bit of audio with your smart device and send it to the same place. Until next time, don't forget to hack your world. I would like to thank the Internet Archive for media hosting and bandwidth. The views expressed on this program are my own and where applicable those of my guests and in no way reflect those of my employer or anyone else. This show is produced from 100% recycled bits. Except where noted, permission to recycle those further is granted under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States License. That means you're free to change this show as much as you like as long as you don't alter credits and you share your changes under the same license.